Well, hey, everybody. Good morning and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. If it's your first time worshiping with us on this Sunday morning, whether here in person or online, I just want to offer you a special welcome and thank you for being with us here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, we have been in a sermon series on the book of Philippians. It's kind of our summer uh, series this year. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our passage today, and then we will spend some time uh, in prayer, and then we will unpack and kind of talk about what God uh, has to say to us today as we consider uh, what the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church uh, 2,000 years ago. So here we go. Today our passage is Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have uh, reasons for such confidence." If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather here this Sunday morning. Um, I think we, uh, we take it for granted maybe that uh, we come to church every Sunday or that church is going on every Sunday, uh, Lord, but I think... Um, this morning, I just want to thank you for the opportunity that we can gather together, that we can worship you, that we can uh, fellowship with one another, that we can meet you, Lord, um, in, in a space that is designed specifically to do that, and we can do it together in this community that has uh, committed to following your Son, Jesus. Give us uh, wisdom and knowledge to hear what you have to say to us this Sunday morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, okay, if, if, if this is uh, if you're not super familiar with the book of Philippians or you missed a couple weeks or something, Paul is writing from a jail cell. Uh, we're not totally sure where. It could be Ephesus. He's writing to the Philippian church. And as we've read so far, it's been clear, Paul loves this church. He's so thankful for them because of, of what, they're, what they've done, how he's seen them sort of live out and follow Jesus. And, and specifically, he's writing the letter uh, with at least one big reason, which is to thank them for a big financial gift that they sent him. If you were in prison in the ancient world, there was no sort of system to care for people in prison. There, uh, there is not like your meals were somehow paid for or anything like that. So you needed people who would uh, rely, you know, you could rely on financially to bring you food or to at least uh, give you money so you could pay for food. Um, and the Philippians, finding out about Paul's imprisonment, have gathered a, a sum of money from their congregation and sent it to Paul in, in wherever he's at. And he's very thankful for them, and he's also updating them a little bit on what's been going on with him. 
Now, if you don't normally take notes, I, I would suggest today you do. I think, uh, think you'll, you'll find today's maybe we'll have some, some good opportunity for some notes to really learn about sort of the context that Paul is writing in. Because um, we're going to be talking today a little bit about some of the things that Paul is maybe most famous for. Uh, things like faith in Christ, works of the law, all that stuff. Paul's going to bring it up today. So we're going to try to uh, break it down a little bit. And if you, you know, I, I, would, I would, yeah, like I said, I, I would suggest taking some notes on it. Um, and it also entails a real shift in the letter. Okay, so let me show you what I mean here. Okay, verses uh, 1 to 2, Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Okay? Um, it kind of reflects this loving tone that Paul has had throughout the letter so far, where he's just very thankful for them. He's very, he's got real good vibes about all the stuff that's going on around him, even though a lot of it's kind of crummy, if you, if you remember what, what's going on around Paul as he's stuck in prison, kind of the stuff that he reports is going on outside of the prison he's in. It's not necessarily rosy stuff, but Paul has been very excited about it and very thankful for the Philippians. Okay, so we get that in verse 1. But then in verse 2, total tonal shift. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And maybe if you're reading it, you're, you're thinking, wow, that escalated kind of quickly, <laughs> right? That was not expecting that, Paul. Where did that come from? It's kind of a jarring change um, in tone in the letter that has really puzzled uh, commentators and readers of the book of Philippians uh, kind of ever since, um, it, you know, the people first started studying it. So why does the tone shift here? What accounts for sort of Paul, you know, jumping really quickly into this sort of tone where he's using some kind of harsh language to describe some different people? Well, the key might be here in verse uh, 1, the second part of verse 1, where Paul says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things uh, to you again. Now, there are some uh, commentators, um, including some really old ones, a guy named Polycarp, actually, one of the first sort of uh, bishops in Christian history. He had this theory as well, that um, Paul is actually quoting a previous letter that he had written to the Philippians at some point in the past. When he says to them, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, he's kind of saying, you know, we detect maybe that they asked him, hey, Paul, could you, could you send us some of what you wrote to us in the past about this issue? And Paul's saying, sure, I have no problem. I keep, uh, you know, duplicates of all my letters. I will verbatim copy a section of that and send it back to you. It's kind of Occam's razor's approach to it, right? The simplest explanation is probably the right one. It seems like that makes a lot of sense, where Paul is just saying, we're going to quote back to you uh, something that we talked about before, which really explains why we feel like we're being dropped into a, a, a different letter altogether, right? Is because it is. It is a portion of a different letter that Paul had, had written in the past. So what's happening? Why are the Philippians asking Paul to write to them about something else that, uh, or write to them again about something he's written in the past? What could be sort of on the horizon? Um, and the difficulty with this, with so much of reading, especially these parts of the Bible, these letters that are written from different um, people to congregations, one of the challenges is it's like playing a game of telephone, right? Where we are only hearing one side of it, right? Imagine you are, you know, in the room with somebody and you hear them on the phone talking to someone else and you hear their side of the conversation, you don't hear the other person's side. You can gain some of what's going on through context, but there's going to be some stuff you're just going to be confused about, and you're just going to kind of have to live with it. And that's what it's like for us as we read what Paul has to say here. Okay? We're getting one side of his conversation with the Philippians, and we have to figure out what's he, 
what he's talking about. So what's most likely? Okay, again, we're going to kind of tread cautiously into this to try and to reconstruct some of the scenario as best as we can, knowing that, you know, we can only go so far. But what, what's going on most likely is that on the horizon in Philippi, or maybe already having shown up, there's a group of Jewish teachers um, who, who are coming to kind of speak to them, uh, the Philippians, about what it means to follow Jesus and the role of some of these other parts of, of what, had, uh, what, what Jewish people had always done in relation to God, what role those continue to play with, um, uh, with followers of Jesus. Now, Paul calls them enemies in verse 17. So, you know, we'll talk about that in another sermon here in a couple weeks, but Paul calls them enemies. And so we get a sense that they're intentionally set against Paul, that they're sort of like instigators or provokers, right? So they have an agenda, they're kind of coming in and they're trying to sort of enforce it on these Philippians, and and they're doing it in such a way that is really kind of angering Paul to the point where he's willing to use some strong language to describe them, right? And, and we know people like this today, right? Remember when we uh, studied the book of Proverbs, if you were here for that series, we talked about uh, the, 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 the type of character that the Proverbs talk about, someone who's a mocker, someone who likes to cause division, someone who goes out of their way with an agenda to sort of uh, spoil things, right? We know people like that, right? Or at least we uh, we see them on Twitter, if nothing else, right? People who um, kind of confuse what's central maybe, and they fixate on that as if it's life or death, and they're trying to sort of muck up everything else for everybody else who's not, you know, on their exact side of it. And so th- you could think of them as maybe perhaps some Twitter trolls, right? People who are kind of going out of their way to intentionally mess things up for Paul. And that really accounts for his, his strong language. Now, we also need some context as to why this conversation is so important, So when we read our New Testaments, um, the book of Acts, and then we read some of the letters of Paul where this issue seems to come up uh, several times, um, we realize that one of the early challenges to the church, to the church as it just starts out, is asking this question, what what is the role um, between the, the covenant with Moses and Abraham and how that plays now with Christ's advent? What does, what, how do those two things fit together? And, and sifting through this took a while for this young church, right? There was a lot of division around it. It required certain conversations, even at one point a council where a bunch of people come together from all different corners of the world to sort of figure out what do we think about this? Like, what is the spirit leading us to? How does what, what the, is, is a part of that covenant actually play into what we see with Jesus? And um, so, you have conversations going on, and then people revisiting those conversations and wondering, like, are we actually on the same page? We see this early on in the church. Um, and so uh, it's possible that maybe some people who were upset with the decision that was made earlier are kind of going out and trying to, you know, poison the well for Paul in future places that he's gone and worked. That's one uh, theory I've read, which is really, you know, kind of interesting and compelling. Either way, though, we know this is a contentious issue for the church. It's an important one, one that they were in uh, constant dialogue over. And so that's probably what, what, what's, what's going on here. Now, even then, like even knowing the context, we might feel a little bit uncomfortable with Paul's language, right? He uses some strong language here. And I just, a, a few things here about that. First of all, Paul is not just talking to any old person he disagrees with. Like, this is not Paul, like anyone who disagrees with me, I'm going to use the harshest, strongest language possible to describe them. All right, like I said, these are people who seem to be going out of their way to sort of tear down Paul's work. They have an agenda that is 
to harm Paul. And so Paul's just speaking his mind. Like he's being honest about what he feels about these people. And I was thinking about this a little bit this week and I was like, man, if, if someone came into Res City and did this, like I would probably not be afraid to speak my mind about that as well. Okay? I, you can just kind of understand the frustration that, you know, just because we're all expected to be Minnesota nice doesn't mean we never speak our mind. I think I might be willing to kind of say what I really thought if someone had that agenda here at Res City. Second thing to, to, to note about this is that there's a difference between our culture and theirs, okay? And this is so important. Whenever we read the Bible to understand, it's taking place in, in a different world in a lot of ways. And so for us, um, modern debate or critique is expected to be very polite, right? Where you, you speak in very polite tones about the person you're disagreeing with. That's our expectation, is not the expectation in the ancient world, okay? There is no love lost when you're debating somebody. It's actually just kind of part of the expectation. So name-calling is actually a very normal part of ancient rhetoric. You can read other uh, philosophers or writers talking about someone they disagree with, and they'll use language like this. And so we can imagine that Paul is probably having similar things spoken of in regards to him by whoever these people are, okay? So it's, it's important to kind of just understand, even if we're a little uncomfortable with it, this would have not made anybody uncomfortable in the ancient world. In fact, it probably would have been expected. And Paul's word choice here is not just rage. I think we learn, he's intentional in the words that he uses. So when he uses, he says, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. So he refers to dogs here, he's talking about uncleanness. Now again, a big difference between the ancient world and our day is uh, dogs didn't have Instagram accounts in the ancient world, okay? <laughs> dogs were not like your cuddly pet in the ancient world. They were kind of unclean animals that you typically, you know, didn't want in your house, okay? Major, major, major shift. So, um, so he's talking about uncleanness here. And this is a word actually we find in other Jewish discourse to describe unclean Gentiles, calling them dogs, so Paul's actually, you know, doing a little bit of a polemic where he's turning that word and that idea of uncleanness back onto these, uh, onto these um, people coming into the Philippian church. When he talks about them as being evildoers, he's saying that these people have a real negative impact. And when he talks about mutilators of the flesh, he's probably talking about an unhealthy focus on circumcision. Now, okay, if you, you know, if you spend any time in the church, there's a good chance you've sort of heard about ancient Judaism and sort of the context that Paul's writing in as describing, uh, it, you know, Judaism in Paul's day like this. It's a religion which has as its central point that you need to follow a law perfectly, okay? And we call that works maybe. We, follow, we do these works in order to earn righteousness with God, which allows us to go to heaven. The whole goal is to get to heaven someday, and that's what the average Jewish person believed. And so they're constantly trying to, you know, add to their account of doing good works in order to please God and earn righteousness. And onto the scene, Paul comes in and says, hey, instead of works, try this thing instead. Now, when we really study the first century, there's very little about that that's actually true about what ancient Jewish people believed, okay? And so if that's what you've heard, I don't want you to be alarmed and think I've completely misunderstood the gospel my whole life. That's not true, um, but it is helpful for us to understand what Paul is actually responding to as he writes to these Philippians here. So first off, Judaism is not a religion. When we think of a religion today, we think of something that is, 
you know, anyone can kind of opt in or out of at any point, right? There's certain parts about it that we follow in order to gain the, the favor of the gods or something like that. Judaism is not a religion in the sense that we think of it today. It's a group of people who have a special covenant that has been created with them, with this ethnic group, between them and, the, and their god, Yahweh. And it has been kind of established on these different sort of mediators and then um, you know, uh, parts that are put into the covenant um, at previous dates. And they're just living in the midst of that. And so you can kind of think of it like a marriage, right? In a marriage you have, it's a covenant. Two people come together, right, to, to commit to one another, to be each other's special um, possession in a sense. That's the word that, that God uses to describe Israel for him. A special relationship between uh, two people where you have vows. You have things that you say, we're going to commit to do these things as, as part of our covenant with one another. Okay? You wear a wedding ring, right, to mark yourself off as taken, right? So, you know, everyone knows, no, I am in a covenant with somebody else. And, and you, can, you can look and you can see that that's the case. And then the last thing is you, you move in together, right? You dwell with one another, right? Those are kind of some, that's what marriage looks like for us. Well, this is really similar to what's going on in Judaism, okay? You have these sort of, these vows of sort of like, we will pledge to do these things for one another. That's, that's Torah. That's what we, we have with, uh, with Abraham and Moses being set down to the people of Israel, okay? And we pledge to honor Yahweh, to follow what he has called us to do, and Yahweh pledges a bunch of stuff to us as well. And spoiler alert, only one group, only one of those two uh, members of the covenant lives those out, and it's God, okay? Um, but that's, that's sort of uh, baked into it. Um, instead of a wedding ring, there's circumcision. This is sort of this thing that marks off us as the special possession of God, making us distinct. And then finally, this idea of dwelling together, right? In the tabernacle, the tent that followed the people of Israel throughout the wilderness that eventually became a permanent temple, okay? God was dwelling. He was living with his people in a, in a literal house with them in their midst, as part of this covenant that they had together. And all of this is very central to who they are as a people and their relation to God. Now, Paul talks about his confidence that he has followed and lived this out very well, that he has sort of um, kept these things central at at a different time in his life. And he's kind of comparing himself to uh, perhaps the people that the Philippians are coming into contact with. So he says in verses 4 and 6, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law of faultless. See, Paul had these very impressive credentials for himself that, um, that he kept these covenant markers as, as a central sort of guiding uh, principle for his life, that he lived these things out to uh, completeness. He was marked off for God at the proper time. He had the right lineage. He was very, very learned and studied, far beyond most Jews of his time in the observance of the law. That's what it means when he says, I was a Pharisee. This is a sect of Jewish people in that time who committed themselves to understanding in depth the law and how to live it out in their time and place. Paul was um, living this out with, with sort of great, um, gr- he says, I was advancing far beyond um, other people like this, uh, you know, other Pharisees, uh, despite my young age. That's what he says in the book of Galatians. So he was, a, he was a, a big deal. He was a hot shot young Pharisee, someone everybody looked at as kind of a rising star. 
okay? And, and he followed the law perfectly, fulfilling this pledge of Torah perfectly. Now, pay attention here. I think this is worth just uh, mentioning really quickly. Pay attention to the word zeal here, especially as he, comp- he talks about it as persecuting the church. Now, you might read zeal there as great enthusiasm. He was very zealous. He went to bed thinking about it and woke up the same morning, you know, thinking about it. It's all he thought about. It consumed him. You know, I never slept in, right? I was always at, uh, you know, at work on time. I grinded really hard, right? You might think that's what Paul's getting at with this idea of zeal. And, um, you know, that's part of it, but it's more specific, okay? Because this is actually a word we see show up at different places that speaks to um, how far someone would go to protect God's honor and the covenant, refusing to put up with any impurity or unfaithfulness in their midst, even to the point of violence, Okay, so zeal actually shows up in the Old Testament a couple of times to describe this specific thing. So in the book of Numbers, there's a, a guy named Phinehas, and he, his zeal leads him to actually murder a fellow Israelite who brought a non-Israelite into the camp and defiled it. Okay, that word zeal is specifically used to describe what he does there. And in uh, the book of First Kings, Elijah, the great prophet, describes himself as being very zealous. And if you look at what's going on, right before it, he had sort of ordered the execution of these prophets of Baal, okay? Of these, these people whose presence is causing us to be impure. Now, Paul saw himself, I think, as an inheritor of this tradition in particular, of pouring himself into doing whatever he needed to do to sort of keep Israel from impurity, even to the point of using violence. And so when he talks about his zeal in persecuting the church, that's what he's talking about. And if you're familiar with Paul's story, you know in the book of Acts, he is behind some persecution, some actual execution of some people who are following Jesus. And for a time in his life, he was, um, he was trying to actually go do more of it. That's actually where he meets Jesus, is where he's on his way to, to uh, propagate some more of that. So no one could claim that they had gone further than Paul in their desire to be faithful, to live out uh, this, what they thought, what he thought was a central part of this covenant with God. And so this is who Paul was, and Jesus was a threat to that. Now, what does Paul think now? Okay, that's important because Paul is talking about all this stuff in the past tense. Something has changed dramatically for him and how he views these parts of his identity. Okay, and he talks about these things as a loss to him. So we find this in uh, verse 7 here. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. So Paul uses, he's using eco- economic language here, okay? He, he says that gain or wealth for him doesn't come by accruing assets that are according to or gained by the flesh, which is just his human achievement done without the power of God, but instead by committing a loss of those things. Okay, taking them off the financial spreadsheet as assets. Instead, for Paul, they function as, as credits or debts, if you think of it in accounting language. That's the role that these play for him now. Now, why is that the case? Now, Paul, like I said, he talks about this in a lot of his letters. So we're going to draw on a few other of them just briefly here to kind of fill it out. Okay, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the law, 
what had been a part of the covenant when it was established with Abraham and Moses was filled with glory, and it was the center of gravity for them. Okay? But Paul says there that something of greater glory has been revealed in Jesus now. Okay? The time of the centrality of those things to hold together the covenant with God had run its course. It had completed its task. And Galatians, in Galatians 3, Paul talks about the law. He uses the, the, the word uh, that we could translate now as like a sort of um, a nanny or a caretaker or like a babysitter to describe the role of the law before the advent of Christ. Okay? It had kind of been there to help the people of Israel to live faithful to God. Um, but now that Christ has come, something greater beckoning Israel into maturity beyond the need for a babysitter, law and circumcision, these things no longer are at the center anymore, okay? Because now, in this time of Jesus, God himself has come in person to become the center of gravity for relations between him and people, to renew and to hold the covenant together in himself, and no longer in the faithfulness of these different people living out these stipulations of the covenant, And so in coming and dying, Paul says in Galatians 3, Jesus has fulfilled the covenant. He's ushered in a new era of God's relations with his people, but invites all people now to become equal members of that, tearing down the wall that created some separation. That's what he says in Ephesians 2. And so now all people can be descendants of Abraham, members of this covenant, children of Abraham, in this special relationship with God. It is all now centered on Jesus. And so for Paul, if the law or anything else takes center stage, sort of competes as the center of gravity with Jesus himself and distracts people from it, then it is worth nothing at all to him. It becomes garbage. That's the word he uses there, garbage, which can mean dung or crap, okay? It's, it's strong language to describe this. And, um, but, but for Paul, if it takes on that role, it becomes that. And so putting our confidence in the flesh Um, putting zeal into following anything other than Jesus at the center is foolish, okay? Because those things have been eclipsed by something of greater glory that far surpasses them. And instead, the goal for us should be to be found in him, found in Christ. And this is what he says in verse 9 through 11. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So all of this, being known, being found in Christ, finding righteousness through faith in Christ, we'll talk about it here in just a second, knowing the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, all of those things uh, lead to righteousness and to resurrection and to hope because it, it is what God has made the center of his relations with people and the center of his purposes and plans for the world itself. Okay? All this comes through pistis Christu. Okay, that's the, 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 the word for faith in Christ there. And depending on what Bible translation you have, it gets translated differently depending on what you read. It can both be translated faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ. And the question is, how does Paul mean it there? Now, for me, the meaning is the same either way. We are trusting, we are resting, and we are relying in the finished faithful work of Christ himself. 
Okay? That's where we find our hope in. Christ has been obedient, faithful to accomplish God's purposes, and we rest in him, we trust in him, we believe in him that our own fulfillment and righteousness comes through his work. So there's no, I don't think, any contradiction between them, but it's important to know that you can translate that different ways, and depending on how you do, um, it can kind of lead to different emphases. But either way, there's nothing else for us to rest in. And notice this, and we'll talk about this here as, in a little bit as we wrap up the sermon, in a, um, but Paul talks about dying like Christ, of knowing him, okay? We know Christ by dying to other things that might contest for our hearts, contest for our imagination of what it means to follow God. Now, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that this gets parsed out throughout the Bible, okay? A lot of different ways of talking about this. And one that I've been kind of noodling over in my head here recently is from Matthew 7, okay? This is where Jesus uses the analogy of resting in him and building a house on him, okay? So you can do it, Jesus says, you can, re- you can build a house, you can build the totality of your life upon a rock or on sand, all right? And the rock is God's work in Christ. It's breaking into our world. It's beckoning us to join him in faith by building on top of it. Now, sand is anything else, okay? Our own action built on a foundation. But the point of, that Jesus is making is that eventually is going to fall apart, all right? If you know anything about foundations for houses, you know building a whole house on top of just some sand is probably not a recipe for, you know, a good long several decades living comfortably inside of a house, Because uh, a lot of different things can come up and ruin your house. Jesus talks about rains, floods, winds. All of these things will erode the foundation. Now, maybe we have different, you know, reasons for wanting to build a house not on the rock but on the sand. Maybe we want to be closer to the beach. We really like the idea of a beach house that, you know, uh, is not going to fall, you know, that, that, it, that we, you know, we think the view will be really nice and we're not too concerned about the foundation. There could be a lot of reasons that we want to build on that. But either way, the point is that building our lives, finding surpassing worth, like Paul talks about, to formulate our life around on anything other than God himself revealed in Jesus, crucified and risen, will eventually lead to disaster. It will distract us and it will lead to disaster, to destruction. Now, what kind of sands do we find ourselves today building on, right? Um, I, perhaps you, you probably are not trying to live out, or most of us in this room are not, you know, do not, have not grown up with, you know, the, these, these parts of the Jewish law central to us. But that doesn't mean what Paul is saying here doesn't apply to us. Because there are lots of things that we could build our life on. It could be a vocation, it could be a calling, a career, an identity, a, a lifestyle, a personality, whether it's ours or someone else's, a task that we've been given to, right? And what we do is we often take these things that are good, just like the law itself was good, given by God, okay? And what we task them with surpassing worth, okay? Where we think knowing these things can make everything else, you know, maybe even including Christ sometimes, seem like garbage in comparison so that we may gain it. And often we don't intend to do that. It's, it's something that happens in the back of our heads. And I think this is where the, what Jesus talks about here with building our houses on a rock is so helpful to think about this. So I just saw, I saw this recently, a pastor named Ike Miller, he, he posted this on Instagram and he said this, and this is very convicting to me. Um, Many of us are building our lives on the sand close to the rock, believing that when the storm comes, we can just quickly move our house to the rock. Now, the problem is that houses don't work that way, and neither can our faith. 
all right? And I think we need to think about that and ask ourselves a question of where are we actually building? What is our foundation that we're building on? And I thought today as we kind of uh, think through this, um, you know, a healthy community is, shares their stories with one another. I think that's a sign of a healthy community in that they know each other, but then they also share their story, specifically their story of living in the story of Jesus with one another so that we can be inspired, to be encouraged, to, to maybe to, to learn from it. Right? And that doesn't necessarily mean everyone's story needs to look the same, but we are going to be more robust in our understanding of who Jesus is as we hear each other's stories. And so I thought, um, you know, I would share the reason I got into ministry in the first place um, because I've always resonated with this idea of, of building on something that's close to the rock or finding something else and investing it with surpassing worth or glory other than Jesus himself. That's a huge part of my story and why I ended up uh, in ministry. So for me, I had, had it in my mind since high school that I was going to um, uh, find my purpose, my worth, and glory in a career coaching football, okay? That was, I was, I was just, uh, you know, to football held surpassing glory in my mind, okay? And I desired to give myself to it. Now, I was smart enough to know I was not going to, like, make it to college uh, based, on my ath- based on my athletic prowess, so I figured I'd have to find another way in. Um, and so I got on at a staff at North Dakota State University as a freshman, working and doing video stuff. I made it clear to them, hey, this is what I want to do, like, I want to be you guys or better <laughs> someday. And, and so, like, I'm just getting my foot in the door. And I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Um, I will sacrifice hours and time with friends and school, whatever it takes to sort of build my way up into this role. And they were like, sure, you can, we hate doing this work, so you can do all of it. And so I, I did it, and I, I poured myself into it. I was very zealous for this. Although I didn't kill anybody, I was very zealous for this, all right? This was a, a huge thing for me. And I invested my life into it, um, and I, you know, wanted to receive that glory back upon myself. I had a clear path for my life, and it was working. I was making good, good connections. I think I had a good career in, in football sort of uh, for myself after I would have graduated. And as I look back on it now, I realized I was putting this weight of glory, right, of something that didn't rightly belong to anything other than Jesus onto this career. I thought it would gain for me so much glory, having this thing, attaining it, earning it, you know, achieving it, that my life would become uh, purposeful. And so, it seemed far more pressing to me than anything else, including my desire to, to, to follow Jesus, to, to know who he was. And it impacted how I lived, how I acted, what I valued, where all my time went. All my time went into this. And eventually, it crumbled under those expectations, okay? Because it was not built to hold that amount of weight of glory. And so, some ways that I realized that I, I was holding something else as having surpassing glory was, one, in the sacrifices I made. I talked about this, okay? I had no boundaries on how far I was willing to go to sort of, uh, you know, gain this glory for myself, to move ahead in this career. So I went to extreme measures to appease this. And it, it made me a terrible student, okay? I had a very not good GPA, and, it, and I was very okay with it. I was, I was okay with it because, like, um, I thought skipping classes, getting, you know, worse grades was okay because I was actually securing something I thought was far more important. 
Okay, I made these great sacrifices in order to accomplish it. And like, like I said, um, it really messed up my grades. And it had some other effects down the road that I won't talk about. Don't worry, I did graduate college. But um, like it, had some, it had some major effects on my majors and what I was doing on the school side of things. Okay, I was very disconnected from the church. Right? I, was still, I, was, I went to church on Sundays when I could, especially during the off-season, um, but I saw very little value in it. I really went to great lengths to not connect into any churches at that time because I didn't really see in what really mattered to me, what was really central to my understanding of my life. I didn't really see a lot of gain to be had in really being a part of a church. So it was just kind of something ancillary in my life. Um, and... Uh, you, you know, as long as I was fixated on this career, on, on football itself, I just couldn't find a category for why being really connected at church was important, okay? Because fundamentally, you know, the glory of Christ did not really match up with the glory to be found in this career for me. And, and then finally, like, misery, okay? Like, after about four years of this, like, I, I'm not kidding you. We were at a, at a point in our football season where we were actually making the playoffs. It was a big deal. We had just moved up a division. It was our first year in the playoffs uh, at, at this division. And I was like, oh no, I don't, I just want this to end. I was literally hoping that we would lose and the season would end and I could quit. That's how miserable I was doing this. I had kind of come to this place that I had put so much of myself into this that uh, I was, I, like, I, I just needed to stop. Okay? Um, I was literally praying that we would lose football games, which is not a, you shouldn't do that if you're going to be a football coach, okay? Just goes without saying, you should pro- that should probably is a sign you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, and for me, it was, I was like, I need to get out of this. I was just miserable. And my misery is what forced me out eventually. And there, there's more to the story, um, uh, and, and if you ever want to hear more of it, I would love to talk to you more about it, but uh, my misery is, is eventually what forced me out. Because I learned that at best, Football was only going to manage my life, right? It, could, it brought me some happiness and some joy. There were good times in there, right? And I still love the sport of football, um, but like, at best it could only get me so far, right? And I think I was aware of that as I completely gave myself over to it. And, and, and so, like Paul says in verses 10 and 11 here, I want to go back to that. Um, He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I think what I learned that, especially I look back on it now, is I needed to participate with Christ in dying. Okay, I needed to die to what I previously thought had surpassing worth. I needed to die myself to that. I had to let go of its hold on me through faith. Now, this was not hard. You probably are not, you know, hearing this, you're probably thinking, that was, you sound like that was probably a pretty easy thing for you to, to do, and it was. But I'll say this, it's not always easy to die to something that you realize holds this place in your life, right? It is a difficult thing to do sometimes. And, and like I said, these are usually good things, right? There's nothing wrong with football, right? There's nothing wrong with so many of the, th- well, some people might think that there's something wrong with football. Like, Julie just smiled when I said that. Um, but like, <laughs> uh, you know, these are usually good things that we invest with a worth or a glory that they can't have, okay? So, so, so sometimes we don't have to quit them, but we might have to prayerfully work out what it means to die to its hold on our lives. And this is a constant process. Remember last week in the sermon, we, Paul talks about work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling, I think that this is what he means, or this fits into that category of a constant process of going back, of seeing what we are building our lives upon and being willing to die to it, okay? So that we may find the power of Christ's resurrection, the power of following, loving, and finding glory in Jesus, which is far more life-giving. And that's something I found as I was willing to die to that, is that uh, I, I found so much more life, so much glory as I put that sort of expectation of glory onto something that was designed to hold the weight of it in Jesus himself. Now, I know, I know my story is, is not unique. It is unique, but I also know, you know, we all might feel things like this at different points in our lives. So maybe you're like me. Maybe there's some similar disconnection or sacrifice or zeal or misery around something, okay? Maybe something you've invested glory into that is not designed for it is being crushed under it because it's not designed to handle it. And God is revealing to you maybe its hollowness, that you might be missing what God is actually up to in Jesus, right, in order to give us salvation itself to give us joy and purpose in life that comes from God himself. And so maybe you need to follow Jesus in death in some way. Now, I'm not telling you to quit, to quit your job or, or quit something, right, necessarily. Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to look different for different people, but consider if your life is built on the rock or if it's built on just something near it. Okay, that's a question we have to constantly ask ourselves. And, and it's, it's good for us to be reminded of this need periodically, uh, we, I've talked about this in sermons before, but I think the Christian life is a constant retuning ourselves back to the gospel. You know how instruments, right, get out of tune? If you've ever played a, an instrument, you know that they can get out of tune um, and you need to, you know, pair it up with something that makes the right sound and tune your instrument so that it makes the same sound. Because instruments, just, they just get out of tune. It's just the way that the world is, right? We're like instruments. We will get out of tune to the gospel as we start to get tuned to some other thing. And we need to be in a constant process of tuning ourselves back to the thing that God is doing in Christ, that he's revealed in our midst, that is itself, uh, nothing is worth more than it. Nothing has surpassing glory to it. And we might need to find a loss in something. We might need to die in something to something in order to tune ourselves back to it. This is a constant process, okay? This is a constant process for us, but it's one that will allow us to continue to find life in what God has revealed in it, in Jesus. Let me pray here uh, to, to close us as we head to a time of worship. God, I want to thank you personally for revealing yourself to us so that we may know what is of surpassing glory or what is not, and that when we when we build our life on the sand, when we find our righteousness through faith in your Son, when we participate with your Son in the power of resurrection, but also in death, Lord, we, we may find the surpassing glory that comes in your Son, Jesus, who you've revealed to us, who you've brought into our space so that we may find it and have life. You yourself coming, taking on flesh, joining with us in covenant and relationship, God. Help us to have wisdom to know through your spirit if we are building our houses on uh, something that's just close to the rock, something that is uh, not of surpassing glory, but we've believed we, that it is, Lord, whether we've done that intentionally or unintentionally, Lord. Give us wisdom through your spirit uh, to know how we may build our lives on the rock of your son, Jesus. I pray all this in his name. Amen.